0: And I don't mean this in a conspiratorial way. I'm just saying the medical establishment can generally only see this kind of thing as war, right? Because it is built upon a civilization which sees life essentially as threatening. Um, And I mean that...
1: As something to be conquered.
0: Exactly, yeah. To be dominated and conquered because it's threatening. And because the natural reaction to fear or from fear is control, Right, it's, it's it makes sense in a way, but it's only because you fear the thing you can't control, i.e., life. Or one could even say, you know, the feminine. And so it's no surprise then that the narratives that we get from the medical establishment are essentially all war metaphors. We talk about frontline workers, right? We talk about you know, like yeah, the the battle or the you know, hold the you know, we, are, we, are we all got to dig in. Or there's there's so much of the languaging is around war and. There's a consequence to that, I guess I'm I'm trying to impart, right? That it's not benign to think of this as a war, because then it's the same way that people say, you know, they lost the battle to cancer. Right. So it's like saying, and I'm not trivializing it to say this, but just that, you know, there is a consequence to then see also say disease and, and for example, cancer as something that is trying to get you as opposed to just being itself. And this is the thing I think with nature is that when you are the center of the universe, Anything that interrupts your, you know, will to be yourself and, and all of the ways in which you want to be triumphant, it's seen as quote against you. But from the other equation, the other side of the equation, like a good example would be, you know, you go for a swim in the ocean and you get caught in a riptide, right? And is it all of a sudden it's a, it's a battle for life and death, right? And a lot of people lose that battle, but one could say then is the riptide against them, right? It's just being itself, right? And and there's consequence to that, but it really is the narratives that we can tell that really create that drama or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Welcome to the Revelation Project Podcast. I'm Monica Rogers, and this podcast is intended to disrupt the trance of unworthiness and to guide women to remember and reveal the truth of who we are. We say that life is a revelation project and what gets revealed gets healed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Revelation Project podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you today to Ian McKenzie, who is a new paradigm artist living on the Salish Sea with his partner and young son. For over 10 years, he's been tracking the global emergence of new culture. From the desert of Burning Man to the heart of Occupy Wall Street, he has sought and amplified the voices of visionaries, artists, and activists who've been working toward planetary system change. He is the host of the Mythic Masculine podcast and the founder of A Gathering of Stories. Welcome, Ian. Good to be here. Yeah, it is good to be here. And so I will share with my audience that I was and am so interested in the divine feminine. And of course, so much of what I seek in knowing and experiencing and seeking more of the divine feminine is also that tension of knowing the masculine, not in the patriarchal sense. But of course, the true masculine, the integrated masculine, the mature and the balanced masculine. And so I love the work that you do. And of course, so much of the work that you do is in the realm of mythology, which I so love. And I wanted to just start with this quote that I was so attracted to this morning, which is, myth is not about what happened in past time myth is about what happens to people all of the time. And that mm. is Michael Mead. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to just start there. Like, what is myth to you? And tell me more about your work in the world.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's, I love that quote as well. For me, when I look to the word myth, as it's used, often used shorthand, you know, I think culturally, depending on who you're talking to, it tends to mean something that isn't true right? Which is interesting, actually, that the modern interpretation of that word, most would say, oh yeah, that's that's uh, an untruth. You know, it's a myth. And that seems to speak uh, about what happened to a culture whereby myth, as a short form of mythology, became something that isn't true. Because it's, in some ways, it goes along with a culture itself, which actually has a sort of atrophied mythic imagination, right? In some ways, we're only allowed to um, participate in myth in Hollywood blockbusters and, you know, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings or something. And so in some ways, mythology has been relegated to a consumerist entertainment versus a way of being in the world and a way of engaging in relationship with the world. And so to me, that's really what myth and mythology, I've, I've come to understand it as, is that it's actually a way of not sort of putting on a layer of... I don't know, like, in, you know, fantasy or inventing something, which often that's why it's seen as not true to a sort of rational, literal minded culture. But it's actually a way of building and, and maintaining reciprocal relationship with the world. And to see oneself as, you know, part of a great cosmology that has meaning imbued within it. And that, you know, your own, your particular beingness, you know, as a not as a discrete individual, which is also a, a sort of modern idea that one is actually, you know, an atomic individual. Whereas older understandings, older cultures all understand that, you know, you that's impossible. You can't cut yourself out of the web of relationships. You know, you can pretend to do so and at the great cost to you and the world. But it invites in to understand oneself as like a relational phenomenon, right, that is unfolding. And these characters or these Stories provide ways in that are a lot more flexible in their interpretation. You you can actually, they they depending on when, for example, a story is told and the context it's told and the way and who's looking and it, they can change. Right? They they provide new meanings or new nuance, and therefore it's not about knowing quote you know like the, the truth, but it's about being skillful with a mythopoetic imagination, which is you know for me is a skill.
1: Yeah. Well, I love the point that you brought up too about just having. Having these mythologies exist in the world as a wayfinding device, like you didn't say that exactly, but it's like this way of, and I'll go back to my own personal experience for a moment, because it wasn't until I was in my late 30s that I actually started to discover and understand the importance of mythologies and archetypes as a way to better understand myself and what I was going through. And the ego would have us believe that, right, we're, we're this very special snowflake, as you say on your own website, mm-hmm. that somehow, you know, nobody's ever experienced this isolation or this sense of fracturedness, that it's all new. And yet, if you look at some of these mythologies as a way of finding our way, into consciousness or finding or awakening or into initiation, they're very common mythologies that are part of our story, are part of our becoming.
0: Yeah. And I'd say too, that there, there's discernible patterns. And I think this is what Michael Mead was saying in the in the quote, which he says, you know, mythology is what happens or myth is what happens all the time, but meaning something that keeps happening as in a, f- a phenomenon or a pattern, encounter, stages of life right, all of these things that keep happening and, and have a sort of cyclical truth about them,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right, which, which goes beyond facts, which is why, you know, again, like a, a literal culture, a rational culture wants to, uh, quote, understand the facts, but that doesn't tell you much about, you know, how to live or where meaning, how meaning is derived. And it's in the, the discernment to understand the patterns and what keeps happening and why it keeps happening that I think allows for a sort of a, a rhythmic dance with life instead of trying to understand quote, you know, or, or control it.
1: Yeah. Well, and what would you say, Ian, you know, I'm so curious in terms of what you would say about the mythology or us discovering mythology as more important than ever right now.
0: Well, I think it's, it's understandable from that. It's it's a deep human longing, I think, to, to participate Mythologically, in one's life and in the world, and when if one grows up in a culture where again that mythic imagination and that mythic skillfulness has been has atrophied, then the longing is still there, or it gets uh, co-opted into again being involved with uh, you know in consumerist entertainment as as a substitute, but that actually doesn't fulfill the deep longing uh, that it actually remains there, and so I think that the the absence of that often gets filled, you know, if we just want to talk a little bit about, for example, you know, the whole QAnon phenomenon, which in some ways, depending on how deep you go, you know, you could really get lost in a certain, you know, maze of, you know, stories and, and projections and all the rest. But for me, rather than the content of that, which you could be endably and just endably debatable, let's say, but the longing for it, I think, is there and that's what happens in the absence of a real sort of uh trustworthy mythology is that people fill it right with whatever they can because that void needs to be needs to be met
1: say more about trustworthy mythology because what comes up for me is there's this story that we all live in you know from birth kind of that endless droning right from like kind of the the mother culture that is Always there about kind of how man is the center of the universe, and yet if we were to look at indigenous cultures, they don't have that same mythology.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say you can delineate between essentially colonized mythologies mm-hmm. and you'd like to use the term indigenous mythologies. So, and I do believe that's exactly it. Like the, the the fulcrum of what is the what is the human and what is their place in the world is almost utterly inverted, right? right? Where it's interesting when you think about, and again, I mean, we could, we could go far, I think on this thread, but if we talk about the loss of rites of passage, Mm -hmm. for example, initiatory pathways for youth to adult, from my understanding of what the function of these rites of passage are for, uh, has actually taken on, you know, even more layers. Because what I recognize is that the one's ego and if we just call the ego structure as you know necessary and normal right like is in you know i have a young son i can see him you know interact with the world and very much so you know he's just over two and a half and he is the absolute center of the universe
1: <laughs> absolute center yeah
0: <laughs> and uh and it's great for that age mm-hmm. like, like it's, it's actually makes sense because this being is actually trying to understand the world and their relation to it and at a certain time this is also a quote i think michael uh, has offered and i think it might be a quote from Uh, an African tribe, maybe the Degra. Degra. But it's something like if, you know, the youth, uh, if the elders don't initiate the youth, they'll burn down the village to feel the warmth.
1: Ah, yes, I love that quote.
0: Yeah, there's something about that, which is to say that there's a certain necessary interruption of that ego structure, that old cultures, and thankfully, there's still some of around, are able to understand that you have to do this at some point. Otherwise, the youth in particular, young men become dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I would say, oftentimes, at least in this, in the, the way gender is held in the dominant culture uh, or the colonized culture, is that um, women, you know, again, this is a broad stroke, but often women will enact violence against themselves. Right. Men tend to enact violence external because of the same phenomenon. In some ways, you know, the ego needs to be reoriented, but by its own nature, it would never choose its own end. Right. Right, The ego would, because it would always try to subvert the process to, so it stays intact because that is the function of the ego, right? To be like, I don't want to be anything else than what I am, which is why old cultures would have, uh, or older rooted cultures would have the elders come in and say, okay, it's your time. You know, we're going out to the woods.
1: You're going to face this ego, <laughs> right?
0: How many days? Exactly. Yeah. And, and really for me, it's about compassionately, but firmly inviting them into a bigger story. Mm-hmm. Right That you are not the center of the universe, you are not nobody, but you're not the center of the universe, and without that culturally speaking, you get a culture of well one word I've found is kid yes right which is essentially adults that have not had their ego structures you know properly and compassionately set down and grow up into you know forever in their life and die with an ego structure of them being the center of the universe. I'm not saying I'm cured of this at all. I've been involved in a process similar to this over the last few years, but rightly so it would have been when I was 16, you know, not 38, you know, when it started, for example. So I'm just saying like, it's not an individual failing per se. It's actually a cultural failing that we don't do this.
1: Yeah. It's, it's a cultural failing and it, it, okay. So I'm so This is where I really start getting kind of excited because this it represents this like arrested development almost it's like the suspended state of remaining in my world it's like uh the culture wants you know women to stay in maidenhood you know and not kind of come into the archetype of the mother because when you're initiated into the true mother archetype you are fully grounded you're fully rooted you're fully you know you're able to parent that inner suspended child the Kind of the unresolved maiden that might still be seeking attention out there or validation out there. And I'm guessing it's very much the same in the masculine that there's this way that we, the, that men don't progress from boyhood into manhood. There is no way that the elders or the men of the community come. And help those boys transition into their manhood and celebrate it with them, and also are there to really show, normalize it, show them this is this is the way it's done.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could see or if you talk archetypally I mean, with the structures of patriarchy. Now, you know, I if you've listened to a bit of my podcast, you might have come across that I I do take issue with the word, actually. I don't know if it's as helpful as it's meant to be, Mm -hmm. right? And not to say that there isn't the the same phenomenon of power dynamics and and trespass against the women and and men's own shutting down of their emotional sensitivities and all that. I'm saying all that's true. I just don't know if patriarchy is actually the word we mean when we say that. Uh, I did a really great interview with Rianne Eisler, who wrote the book Chalice and the Blade, who actually sort of invites different languaging around this, where she actually differentiates between what she calls cultures of domination versus cultures of partnership.
1: Yeah. Dominator culture.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so for me, I just say that up front, just um, sort of name that sometimes patriarchy when it's used shorthand, it kind of becomes a catch all right for a lot of things, but it does make sense if we think about, if we talk about domination culture as essentially a culture run by uninitiated men mm-hmm. or boy men, we could say that, it is no wonder then that the women within that cultural paradigm are actually sort of held to, as necessary to stay in their maidenhood, which is essentially, yeah, like a, an uninitiated female um, structure, because it's like the father-daughter dynamic, right. right? And if we understand patriarchy to be actually the rule of the father, archetypally speaking, then it's no wonder that women are meant to stay uninitiated daughters, and so the the way through, of course, like what we've been speaking to, initiating those archetypal stages, is that I actually believe, you know, mothers that I've met that have been totally lit up and and sort of, sort of you know connected to that fire of service to the world and their children mm-hmm. are like you know mama bears on a rampage, as in they know that the culture itself is deeply toxic, and that they're they're completely sort of uh, scary to the system, right? That, oh, that yeah. like an awakened mother is actually quite scary to the system because there's a certain force there, which is really the force of life and, and, to, and protection of generations to come, which is a very powerful um, and necessary um, engagement, you know, with these times. And so, again, it's no wonder that, you know, patriarchal structures would be like, okay, we'll, we'll keep a lid on it because they know it fundamentally threatens it.
1: For sure, for sure. So I want to back up for a minute and just talk a little bit more about your personal story, because I had, you know, really been diving in a little bit more on your website and saw the story about your grandfather and wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, I should draw a little pathway, though, through I've been a filmmaker for about, I don't know, 13, 14 years now. And like you read at the beginning, largely tracking stories um, from the edges of culture and bringing them you know, back to the mainstream, whether that's economics or, you know, I went to Fukushima uh, a year after the partial meltdown in Japan to ask how the Buddhists were responding you know, to the crisis. Um, and it also led to this film project called Amplify Her, which was really looking at female DJs and producers uh, and how was the, you know, quote, feminine arriving and, and being transmitted and channeled through them uh, in their own lives, in their own real stories, and then uh, during that time of my that was an initial interest in in quote the feminine for me right and I read a lot of Marianne Woodman and you know tried to understand gender theory and I realized like wow I know so little about the masculine right which is not actually that uncommon for men that grow up with a certain degree of I don't know recognizing the violence and abuse and trespass that that seems and is truly perpetuated largely by men. And there's this feeling of like, I don't want to be that, right? So they want to be a quote, good guy. Mm -hmm. And there's some nobility in that. But at the same time, what I recognized in like men do often in midlife is that they cut themselves off from their own relationship to their own masculine and their own overall trust in men, actually, to be honest. It takes a while actually for men as they step into men's work to unearth and realize how little they actually tend to trust men in in those deeper places. And so for me, um, my grandfather on my mother's side was largely estranged. He was a sort of, sort of a seeker, you know, academic, you know, brilliant figure, but also kind of unknown to me because he was sort of off on his various uh, inquiries. And it was only later in life that I ended up connecting with him and uh, he died in 2015. And when I was there uh, sort of packing up his things with his son, my uncle, He had books and books and books and stacks of everything, you know, philosophy and metaphysics and all the rest. And uh, in one particular stack, uh, there was a copy of Iron John, which, uh, yeah, is Robert Bly's sort of famous book in the sort of came out late 80s, early 90s, which kickstarted the mythopoetic men's movement. And I'd heard about it and friend had recommended it, but I found the book then sitting there almost, you know, perfectly placed as if for him, by him to say, this is, you know, for you. And uh, so when I read that, I was like that whole, Oh, wow. Somebody, in this case, Robert Bly, illuminating the story of Iron John, which is an old, I think, Bavarian tale, really illuminated my own inner landscape in a way that I was like, "What? Well, I'm not a, you know, a special snowflake, the one, <laughs> only unique man in the world to experience what I, and also I was like, wow, somebody's mapped this in a way that was actually really helpful and, and illuminated so much. So yeah, that really kickstarted my interest then in this next chapter for me, which was diving into masculinity and trying to understand it through this lens, which ultimately led to the podcast as well.
1: Yeah, and the podcast for you is something that really does foster this exploration with all your different guests, correct? Because I've really Mm -hmm. been just starting to dive into your collection, and there's so much there in terms of, uh, again, I, I kind of go back to what gets revealed gets healed, and as we bring these stories from the edges of culture and back into mainstream, my hope is always that you know, somebody listening is going to be able to kind of just like you did with your grandfather's book, hear something that resonates in such a way that they want to go deeper, that they actually want to to explore because there, I think that there's a a hunger
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, to to not only hear about the mythologies that have been hidden, I think, you know, in plain sight, so to speak, but that there's also a hunger to feel alive in a way that I think we're so deadened um, to so much of what is going on. And it just, I think it astonishes people once they do start to awaken to how, you know, the contrast of how deadened or numb they were, you know, in contrast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I studied. I've studied for many years with a teacher named Stephen Jenkinson, and he he said one time around, just describing almost like the moment when someone who maybe has only had, you know, fast food and and you know just cotton candy their whole life, and they sit down to like a proper feast, you know, mm-hmm. a proper, you know, ancestrally adept and properly. Songs being sung over the table, and you know stories told, and like the whole thing, the whole scene, and tasting that food for the first time. He said simultaneously, two things would happen. One is, you might say, "This is incredible, right? Like this is so deeply nourishing," and and you know, just that the joy of that. But this other one that is often not seen is actually the grief that this is the first time you've ever experienced this.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, depending on when you when you are in your life. And for many never experienced that. And so that sort of twin arising around that moment is actually, I think, what happens when people encounter this kind of work or they yeah, awaken to a certain degree of sensitivity. And only then are you able to know like, oh, wow, yeah, I've been... I've been numbed for so long.
1: Numbed for so long, yeah. And and also, I love that quote, you know, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off. Because that's mm-hmm. that next stage of like, that awakening where you're just like, how could I not have known? How could I not have ever been, you know, st- initiated by my elders and of course you i call it the trance but it's that way that i think whether other people call it the matrix or this culture and the way you know that i feel we're very much now in an apocalypse right like and i look at that word as a revealing and this all being again maybe even corona being a mythology i wondered Mm -hmm. if you had anything to say about that
0: sure I mean, I had a really great conversation with a fellow named Martin Shaw. He's a storyteller from the UK. This was a few, maybe a month after the initial lockdown happened, you know, in twenty March 2020, depending on where you were. He spoke about essentially, again, this frame of initiation. And one, he's like, we don't know what's happening. Like, I mean, you know, you could say scientifically, yeah, they're learning stuff and everything. But mythically, you know, you don't know, quote, what something is or means right away. And he said, yeah, there's, story which he told, he said, look, I mean, three men can go off to war and and have that encounter, you know, that traumatic or initiatory encounter and come home, but the what, how they deal with it could be very different, right? One could get into drugs and alcohol and totally spiral, numb out. Another could actually turn to deep spiritual, you know, guidance and actually it can be a path of awakening, but that's not guaranteed that it's quote means the same thing for everybody, right? And so, I think it's good to be very adept with the mythologies that are present, for example, of this time, particularly, for example, what, who's telling what story and why. And I don't mean this in a conspiratorial way. I'm just saying the medical establishment can generally only see this kind of thing as war, right? Because it is built upon a civilization, which sees life essentially as threatening. Um, And I mean that
1: as something to be conquered.
0: Exactly. Yeah. To be dominated and conquered because it's threatening. And, because the natural reaction to fear or from fear is control, right? It's that it's, it makes sense in a way, but it's only because you fear the thing you can't control, i.e. life, or one could even say, you know, the feminine. And so it's no surprise then that the narratives that we get from the medical establishment are essentially all war metaphors. we talk about frontline workers, right? We talk about, you know, like, yeah, the, the battle or the, you know, hold the, you know, are we, yeah, we all going to dig in or there's, there's so much of the languaging is around war. And th- there's a consequence to that. I guess I'm, I'm trying to impart, right? That it's not benign to think of this as a war because then it's the same way that people say, you know, they lost the battle to cancer. Right. So it's like saying, and I'm not trivializing it to say this, but just that, you know, there is a consequence to then see also the, say disease and, and for example, cancer as something that is trying to get you as opposed to just being itself. And this is the thing I think with nature is that when you are the center of the universe, anything that interrupts your, you know, will to be yourself and, and all of the ways in which you want to be triumphant, it's seen as quote against you. But from the other equation, the other side of the equation, like a good example would be, you know, you go for a swim in the ocean and you get caught in a riptide, right? And is it all of a sudden it's an it's a battle for life and death, right? And a lot of people lose that battle. But one could say then, is the riptide against them, right? It's just being itself, right? And, and there's consequence to that. But it really is the narratives that we can tell that really create that drama or not. Mm-hmm. And the last thing I'll say, that's something, again, that Stephen said around, particularly around being out in the wilderness, you know, quote, the wild. He said, look, because at this time, you know, with the people I was with, you know, there was a little nervousness, you know, I don't know bears or <laughs> wild moose or something, but he's like, look, the wild what does he say he said oh yeah the wild doesn't mean you harm it just doesn't mean you (laughs) yeah I mean that's just too good but it's like yeah it's too good but if you haven't been invited to a bigger story you don't understand what that means yeah right because anything that threatens you is means it's out to get you
1: are you someone who loves listening to stories I sure do And if you're like me, then please consider joining an amazing community of women called Born to Rise. My friend Kim Fuller founded Born to Rise as a women's movement, and her intention is to create change in the world through the power of compassion, empathy, courage, and community. Her aim is to empower women by giving them a platform to uncover, process, and share our personal stories and to encourage deep listening. On Saturday, October 2nd, at the Sandy Woods Center for the Arts in Tiverton, Rhode Island, she and her team have created the Born to Rise Women's Story Festival. From 5 to 9 p.m., you can enjoy art, music, books, conversation, food, drink, and stories under the stars. The storytellers are from all around Rhode Island and will share stories about art, identity, food, struggle, joys, and issues we all face as women. For more information and to get your tickets now, only $45 for the whole event, please go to www.borntorise.live. Remember, Saturday, October 2nd at the Sandywood Center for the Arts in Tiverton, Rhode Island, to buy your tickets, please go to www.borntorise.live So so true and I want to go back to what we had pointed to you before and just kind of remind our listeners not that they didn't catch this, but that this is that colonized view. It's This is not, you know, the way that we kind of think about our place in the universe is not the way indigenous cultures think about our place in the universe. We're, you know, this whole center of the universe ideology or mythology is, you know, that which isolates and harms us, this, this type of thinking,
2: Yeah.
0: And I just say, it's no surprise then as well that, you know, the most modern, I think the most modern malady that has emerged, I believe is, is depression. Mm -hmm. And one could say, well, you know, is that a personal thing? Just a lot of, you know, personally people are just sort of can't figure out how to engage with life. And, but for me, it's the natural outcome of a worldview that isn't in relationship with life. It's essentially, you know, you, the will or the, the achievement to dominate life means you isolate yourself from it. Mm-hmm. So, it's kind of like the victory that you didn't know you would win. You know, that that, that was, quote, winning, but of course, it's not winning at all. And, and of course, the consequence of the biosphere, as we see, is deteriorating more and more, is also the fallout from essentially no mythologies that speak to deep reciprocity with life. Yeah. Instead of, you know, we are the lords and masters of it.
1: So, to shift into the work that you're doing in the world and why... And also back to your personal story, I'd love to hear more about what has started to reveal itself in terms of your own, I guess, personal understanding of solving, you know, part of this is, of course, what we're doing, which is amplifying these conversations out in the world. But where would you say or where would you point listeners to start to really have access to these mythologies and also these initiations that we're talking about?
0: Yeah. You know, it's a tough one because often the solution mind is, is the colonized mind,
2: mm-hmm. right?
0: Which is the like, okay, so what do I do about it? Or, you know, how do I get mine? Or, and so it, it's good to pause. I mean, um, one fellow bio, Komalafe, who, I've interviewed on the podcast as well. He says, somewhat famously now, or or oft quoted, but he says, the times are urgent, let us slow down.
1: Yes, I love that.
0: Right. Yeah. And so there's something to that of like, you know, people saying, oh, okay, so how do I get on the train? And I think it's important to say that, you know, like a garden, you know, I recently moved to another community and the matriarch there told the story recently where uh, some of us gathered under this beautiful mulberry tree, which... I think was about at least 25 years old and, and, you know, beautiful leaves, you know, beautiful berries, you know, dripping from the trees and such an, an incredible scene, you know, children running around. And uh, she told the story, she said, you know, I planted this 25 years ago, you know, when, when she first came to that property because of this kind of moment might happen mm. that we, we might gather under the shade, kids might be running around, you know, community coming together. And she didn't say it as like, you know, look at me. So I'm so great. But she was just saying like, that's the kind of service to the future that I think is actually more important to be, quote, you know, thinking about and practicing right now, rather than, you know, can I get mine? Because, you know, if somebody listening to this is not 16 and not in an intact, you know, cultural framework where the elders will come for you at the right time, then it's not there. And not to say that, quote, nothing can be done, but, you know, might you be 30 years from now that elder coming for the youth, you know, that are following you, right? Like that's the kind of service, again, that you're not at the center of. Mm-hmm. So I just say that and you know there are places you can go like uh, I know there's um for example school of lost borders in uh, the US there's uh, Animus Institute Bill Plotkin's work as well which uh, you know focuses more on the journey of soul initiation I've also interviewed him on my podcast so there's certainly things you know that quote can be done but I think it's important to take a longer view of uh, what it means to like what it takes to actually grow culture Mm -hmm. because otherwise you have a weekend workshop and I've really arrived to think of the place where I don't, I do not believe we will reach the future. We, I say we, the, those that want to have a sort of livable future. I don't think we're going to get there through workshops. It's just not going to happen.
1: Yeah. Just sitting with that for a sec. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not going to happen through a weekend workshop. I have a 16-year-old boy, Mm -hmm. that perfect age, and I wonder, you know, and I know you have a son, and so as a mother, I may well be aware of the urgency to slow down, Mm -hmm. yes, and also really feeling, you know, my own what's the word inadequacy in terms of what to offer or how to present other than through conversation and stories some of this initiation and or mythology to my boy and to those of us who are listening who are also mothers i know that that would be also a question that you know i'm wondering if you can answer or help us with.
0: Yeah. I suppose the question meaning like, what can the mother do in the, yeah, the absence of like, say a group of men that they can say, all right, it's time.
1: (laughs) Yes. Take them out in the woods. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the whole kind of poverty, right? of the moment for for so many is that that often takes like, because unless there's actually a existing relationship in some fashion, it does feel a bit sort of interventionist, right? Or, or airdropped in to the moment. Mm Mm-hmm which is why there is um, like the thing that I've understand too, I've spent some uh, number of visits in a community in Portugal called Tamera where they're, I would describe them as essentially a sort of recultured European uh, origin community. They're, they're a community of Germans largely living in Portugal as a community project. And they have a lot of radical research, but they've really showed a sort of intergenerational, uh, you know, growing those, those capacities and those relationships alongside the youth that now they've got youth there who were either, you know, born there or came there quite young and they're now 18, 19, you know, 20. And it really shows, you know, like that they created all of these thresholds and, and ways of holding certain conversations and reflections to the youth. And, you know, it really, really shows. So again, to try to like cobble that, you know, in the moment, while it's totally understandable, it can be really tough. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do know that there's other, there's other groups, I think, like School Law Supporters and things, they have youth initiatory pathways. There's another one called Journeymen, I believe, in the Pacific Northwest that um, they do really good work too. So there's ways in which certainly one can begin to connect, I think, with these groups that are offering that kind of stuff. I mean, I have heard talked to mothers too, where they'll say that, you know, the son's just not interested, right? And um, that can be a really tough one because, you know, again, it's like mom's best idea about what... They should Mm -hmm, be, mm -hmm. can, can land on pretty resistant ears.
1: Right. Being able to see the need, totally being able to see the need, but understanding that,
0: you
1: know, that's, it may not be welcomed. It may not be embraced.
0: Yeah. And I should say too, man, it it is possible that the, again, like the resistance that youth can have to just a well-meaning organization or, you know, guy that shows up and is like, okay, you know, weekend, here we go. Can can feel like well wait there's no relationship there right? it's not built up over time so there's not real trust there mm-hmm. so, so my curiosity too would be okay well how to build relationship over time versus maybe focusing too much on the weekend you know or like that that weekend initiatory event you know which can again feel just a bit too a bit flashy but not necessarily long create a long or longer arc right of actually what's needed or it could be even more simple than that spending more time yeah outside you know and also with other, yeah, you know, adults or parents that are also in this question, you know, again, mm-hmm. gathering in certain ways that approaches it more slowly um, I think is, it can help a lot just to have that time in together to wonder about it could
1: lead to something. Yeah. I love that to wonder about it. Yeah. That's uh, we had the privilege of having the kids go to a Waldorf school, which I think is, you know, the closest that I Um, you know, in terms of schooling and being able to really bring more of that natural organic world and mythology and storytelling into their Mm. kind of daily lives. But, and so while, you know, I know that I've had that privilege, I know that there's so many of us who are, you know, kind of at this threshold um, with our young men as mothers and recognizing, especially you know, those that have been listening to these conversations, recognizing that need to really have these conversations and to create these openings uh, for for our sons. And so, even it's reminding me of a conversation, like, of meeting Mark Green and, and learning about what the man box culture was, created a conversation, right, to wonder about with my son, as you said. Mm-hmm. So... I guess what I'm hearing from you is being able, as a mother, to create those conversations through the wondering with our children is the way right now.
0: Yeah, I feel yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I feel like there's some there is that resistance. I find. I mean, teenagers certainly have it. I was a stepdad to a sort of preteen, so I, I had some encounter with that, and just the sense that again, you know, parents coming with with the good idea, you know, often doesn't tend to land well, depending on the relationship. Whereas I, I do believe authenticity can go a long way. Oh, yeah. Right? Like, I I mean, I'm imagining, you know, as a mother saying, like, hey, look, you know, to their young son, like, there are things I can't give you, actually. And there, there are things that I can, you know, that can help you with. And there's others that I can't. And to just be like that, that's just true, you know? And, so, and, and that kind of, I think, humility, not like, I have the idea and you need to do this. Mm-hmm. But more like, you will you you may really long for this and i can't give it to you you know to spend this time with uh you know older men or be modeled have certain modeling with older men you know there's a certain medicine that can come from older men that younger men need and and to just say like look i can't i can't provide that for you i want to i want to support you to find that though you know like that's sort of sitting beside them kind of thing as opposed to you know telling them that this is the good idea and you have to do it
1: yeah i love that ian
0: that could be, yeah. That could be a way in, yeah. Because I think authenticity for teens is actually the most trustworthy thing. Not, I got to know what's going on versus like, hey, actually, this is this is just true for me where I'm at, and here's what I don't know. That that sense of, that, I think that disarms that innate. Resistance that can come up.
1: Yeah. Something I talk about a lot on this podcast is something I call say yes to the mess, which is kind of that messy human experience where we don't know, right? Being transparent about that and sometimes not having the answers, but knowing that we don't is the conversation, you know, that, that that gets to just be as messy as it needs to be in order for us to be in a relationship with those we love and those that we care about. So, I, I really love that and appreciate your feedback on it, because mm-hmm. it's, of course, occurring to me as we're talking. Mm-hmm. I know we have just a few minutes left, and one of the things that really intrigued me about your work is that you had at some point said somewhere, and I think it might have even been in some of the questions that I had had you ask me in preparation for this. It was around understanding hashtag me too from a mythological perspective. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to dive into that for a few minutes with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that could be a whole podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wary about at least sketching something and then being like, okay, see ya. Uh, but I mean, maybe I could just link it back to what we were saying earlier around this archetypal relationship to the co-patriarchy and the, the daughter, right? The, mm-hmm. the archetypal daughters. And I do think that what's emerged from my understanding around the conversations I've had and the inquiries on the mythic masculine is that there's a consequence when men are cut off from their access to the feminine source, Right I'll just I'll just say it like that sort of mythically speaking you know if you call it like the well of the feminine and it, it, you know it, it, some translate that as like emotions or access to emotions and you know but really it's a deep sensate relationship with the world right and we talked about time earlier and this sense of you know there's kairos and chronos and chronos is the clock time of like okay you know this to that and I think men in particular are are conditioned into the task completion orientation right which is a heroic paradigm get it done, you know, do the thing, charge for it, you know, dominate. And I think what happens is then they they don't have access to that, quote, feminine source. And the only place it seems to be, if we're now talking about, say, in a heterosexual dynamic, is the young feminine, right? And you see it again, there's this incredibly... Uh, just ornately crafted scene in the the cartoon, actually, believe it or not, The Last Unicorn, which came out in like the late 80s, early 90s, where the king, in the case, he's looking upon the ocean where he's had the Red Bull charge all of the young unicorns, which are feminine in the story, into the sea. And he's talking to the last unicorn who's been transformed into a woman in this conversation. And he's basically confessing to her. She's like, kind of like, why did you do this? And he literally says, so I can look upon them and feel young again. Mm. Right? And so, I… <laughs> Just get I, the chills. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, when I… then the fellow's name and the, the king in the story is called King Haggard. And I can tell you, bears a striking resemblance, not necessarily in physique, but to the energy of Harvey Weinstein. Mm. Meaning, there's this sense of this predatory desire to sort of resource from the young feminine as seen as the only source of that and so for me seeing it from that lens now provides again like a mythological underpinning just simply that you know men are just awful and they're conditioned to be awful it's actually like oh this is a consequence of men lacking contact with the source and they see it as only possessed by the young feminine and then trespass and and domination and all in control follow because it's essentially like a it's a deeply uh, it's a deep it's a true longing i guess i should say but it's enacted through a, a toxic outcome, right? Or a toxic strategy, I should say. So that's a brief little, you know, flyby. And hopefully that's enough that uh, the listener can can yeah, feel that from that lens and kind of open that up a bit. And to say, at least from the phenomenon, culturally speaking, that it, yeah, Me Too was basically women saying no more. That's it. You know, like we're done mm-hmm. to, archetypally to that predatory masculine, you know, king you know, like tyrant king, that was essentially preying upon that uh, that young source, and so yeah, the work for men in this case is to do that work to access the source within them and essentially relinquish that uh, objectifying gaze or that objectifying um, behavior that actually is trying to meet a true need.
1: Well, and I love what you're pointing to here, because again, it's just you, you're you layering over one lens of one aspect. And there's so many different lenses that like opens that aperture and invites us all to get curious and go in. And that's where, yes, women might be able to say, you know, enough. And yet, that's still one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is we as women have to go within, as do men go within, and really look through these various lenses in order to know ourselves, in order to experience where we either have some healing, right, some revealing and healing to do, and also to better contextualize and understand. Just again, there's so many of these stories that are so ripe or so fertile for us to dive in and really like reveal more. And yet they kind of sit just like we do suspended on the surface, lost potential and possibility when we don't dare to kind of go there.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And in some ways it's a good segue to uh, to the power of story and why I actually felt the need to invite what became known as a gathering of stories, which is actually a live stream, really a live stream ceremony of a mythopoetic exploration with a lot of the guests that were on my podcast and some beyond. And in earlier this year we did the Soul of Masculinity through this through this lens. And and it was a beautiful you know, surprising uh, encounter with what it means to, like, collectively come together and wonder mm. in this ceremonial way. And in a few weeks, we're doing it again, and it's called uh, the, the Heart of the Feminine is the Inquiry, uh, which will be another online event at gatheringofstories.com. And it, the power of story in this case as well, to, to create ways into these subjects that are maybe less entrenched or less activating of this polarizing reactivity. right. Because a story is a story, you know, it's like, it can have its way with you in so many ways. It's not an argument, you know, it's not trying to see who's right. It's actually, let's see what is revealed.
1: Yeah, I love that. And it's, it's again, it's like dwelling in that inquiry while you're kind of listening to that story. I think we cannot help but sometimes, you know, again, without that reaction, there's, there's this It's like the body simply responds to a story, and sometimes the body, you know, can take us further without us necessarily needing to go up here. It's like it Mm -hmm. opens up, and I was just pointing to my head, you know, we don't have to logic it out, we can actually feel it. Mm -hmm. And again, that's where that opening, I think, is for all of us that is Mm. ever inviting us in. So yeah Ian, thank you so much. This has just been obviously a wealth of me wanting to dig in with you at another time and learn more because I feel like again, we have we had an hour here and we just kind of skimmed the surface of some things. but I also feel like we got to some some deeper some deeper understanding in terms of your work and why it's so important. And, um, and I certainly feel that very much. So thank you. Thanks for your time. And I didn't know other than what you've got going on with the Heart of the Feminine, if there's any other way that you want to invite our listeners to follow you, or if you've got a specific area you want them to, to explore, but you're welcome to invite that.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, if people want to experience the whole Amplify Her universe, which is a feature documentary, but it's also a whole graphic novel series, uh, you know, written, illustrated, animated by women, you can check it out at amplifyher.com. And then my podcast, The Mythic Masculine, uh, you know, a lot of the conversations we referenced here. It's com. And then, of course, the next Gathering of Stories, which is uh, on July 31st. And you can check it all out at com.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much, Ian. And to our listeners, we'll be sure to have all of the links in the show notes. And until next time, more to be revealed. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit us at jointherevelation.com and be sure to download our free gift, subscribe to our mailing list, or leave us a review on iTunes. We thank you for your generous listening. And as always more to be revealed.